0: Hi everyone and welcome to another Peerbox podcast. My name Hannah and today I'm joined by Professor Anne Bust. Um, she's a professor in women's mental health at the University of Melbourne and has been the director of Mercy, Austin and North Park mother baby units over a 25 year period. She was the director of the Beyond Blue postnatal depression program and her other research includes psychotropic drugs in breast milk and child abuse as a risk for postnatal depression. Currently she does second opinions for management of mental health issues in pregnancy and works with protective services and the courts in cases of abuse and infanticide. So I'm very excited to have Anne on today. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: So we're going to be talking about postnatal depression. Um, We're also going to touch a little bit on um, postpartum psychosis and then at the end we'll talk briefly about um, postnatal depression in dads which I think is an under talked about um, issue. So to start um, and what are some of the main differences in identifying and managing antenatal depression compared with postnatal depression?
1: Well, in many ways, you could say what's different about either of those with depression in general, and yep. a lot of the symptoms are the same. But the reason the postnatal depression differs um, is that there's a baby involved. So, antenatally, of course, it's in utero, yep. so we have um, exposure. The baby in utero is exposed to any drugs that you give mum in treatment, but also is exposed to mum's illness. Um, And increasingly, research is showing that that actually comes at a biological cost as well. And then, of course, postnatally, if they're breastfeeding, um, there's the exposure drugs through breast milk but there is also again exposure to illness uh, and the capacity for mum to care for that baby and bond with that baby and we know attachment is incredibly important for the future well-being of that child.
0: Yeah okay Um, so in terms of identifying potentially at-risk women I've seen the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale used so it's a 10-question survey that asks about depressive symptoms um, including self-harm. Um, It's typically used in the postpartum, but it has also been validated for use um, antenatally. In your experience, do you think that it's a useful screening tool to implement at antenatal visits? Um,
1: Look, the the simple answer is yes. Back when we started the postnatal depression program with Beyond Blue, one of the main key points was to use the Edinburgh. Because it's been used around the world, it's been um, put into a number of languages, I think at least 19, possibly more now, and that it's simple. Um, and the research including ours showed that it's very acceptable women find it easy to fill out not intrusive um, but um, there's a very big but it needs to be used as a speaking tool not as just to fill this form out look at the score and tick you go into a box it's the foundation it's not diagnostic it's only an indicator of how you are and have been managing over the last week so it's really picking up Current depression or, or risk for current depression, not risk per se. Yeah. So that's a separate thing. Um, and Murray Paul Austin in Sydney's developed a tool for actual risk. So people antenatally that might be at risk of developing depression in the perinatal period and that's looking for the known associations so past history of depression family history of depression current level of supports um and a few others as well but they're the really key things which of course you don't need a questionnaire but what we find is that particularly in antenatal clinics it's very busy um it's very easy to overlook some of those aspects unless there is a routine procedure. And that's why we thought it was a really important thing to do to bring it in as a routine rather than relying on the nurses remembering, Mm -hmm. but also in particular the nurses or doctors for that matter, relying on their clinical ability because if you don't ask, you don't find out. These women are particularly good at covering up because they don't want to be seen as stigmatised, bad mothers, as a lot of them think postnatal depression makes them incorrectly Mm -hmm. Uh, so they hide it Mm -hmm. so you can't rely on the smiling makeup clad mum um, or mother-to-be to to look like she's depressed they're often more anxious than depressed and of course Mm -hmm. a lot of that anxiety in pregnancy is put down to they're anxious about the baby this is normal and that can be of course but it might not be and that's what needs to be teased out and asked about
0: okay so that risk assessment tool can you just say what was the name of it again
1: um oh it's called RADAC, I think.
0: a okay, <laughs> link to it in our... Um,
1: yeah, so like Murray Paul Austin is cool. the um, professor of psychiatry that developed it. Um, but it's, we didn't use it per se across the 40,000 or so women we looked at when we did the Beyond Blue program. And people used Veering. I mean, they did in Sydney, but we looked at just using a couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, and people had different attitudes to asking about different things. And you have to follow them up. Mm-hmm. One of the anxieties about using the post, the Edinburgh post Depression mm-hmm. Program was Question 10, yes. which asked yeah. about self-harm. And a lot of the midwives were initially very anxious about that because they said, well, if we ask and they say, yes, what the hell do we do with them? And they prefer to kind of really stick their heads in the sand. So we trained with uh, and worked with those midwives and came up with a set plan. What do they do with a woman that comes up with that? So in general, it was referring to the um, psych we call, yeah. um, but... Sometimes it was sending to a GP, depending on the circumstances of of where they were being screened, and what what really happened was that that very rarely got answered um, as being an issue, yep. um, and when it was, it was really an acute thing that was likely to kind of put the woman in danger immediately. Yeah. The other question that people were very anxious about asking was about DV, so domestic violence. Yes. And some um, states do this routinely, but some states said, no, we can't do that because there's nowhere to send them, or that, um, and likewise with childhood abuse. Yes. Um, so what we found out, though, with, when we did ask about them, the next question we got people to ask was, do you want a referral to deal with some of these issues now? Yes. And almost invariably women said no. Uh um so in fact it wasn't a burden on the system um but it did help our database for understanding one of the risk factors and certainly childhood abuse histories are a big risk factor for postnatal depression
0: Uh okay great um so we do hear a lot about the post-baby blues are you able to quickly take this through take us through this diagnosis and is this something that can later potentially morph into postnatal depression um look it's much
1: more common so up to 80 percent of women have the blues and it's generally day three a bit teary and it's usually very self-limiting short so if it's not that's when you start to think well is it something more Um, it's usually brief not serious but once it starts to last two or three days starts to take over most of the day where there isn't joy where there is more crying and sadness and anxiety often than um, anything else then I think you need to start looking at okay what else is going on here. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So postnatally, it's common for women to be pretty sleep deprived and we know that sleep deprivation can have a negative impact on mood. Something I've often wondered is how do you tease apart sort of teariness and um, like low mood? Like how do you tease apart the sort of sleep deprivation and the stress of having a new baby from depression?
1: Well, look, I think in the first instance is um, you certainly have to do a proper, a thorough assessment of the woman. Yeah. And if she's sort of got suicidal ideas or anything, yeah. then she's clearly in a different um, group a more serious group that needs looking at. But there is a big group, like you're saying, that, you, well, you know, yes, you've got some depressive symptoms, but you haven't been sleeping. Um, What's causing this? So the first instance is, let's see if we can get on top of the sleep. Now, that's not always easy because babies, particularly little babies, need to be fed overnight. So um, if... Is it all possible get husband to do an overnight feed or mum to come and stay, like the grandmother of the baby, to come yeah. and stay for a night or two, give mum some sleeping tablets if she needs them, um, and then let's look, review after a night or two of a good night's sleep. Sometimes we do that in hospitals. So um, there are private mother-baby units that you can come in under a paediatrician have okay. a five-day assessment where um, it's really focusing on getting the baby into a routine, managing colic sleep, patterns, etc. And in the midst of all of that, the nursing staff can help look after baby overnight so mum can get some sleep. So again, that gives us a a chance to reassess. And in some of those cases, at the end of the five days, it's clear that mum is depressed and they may well then stay on in those units under a psychiatrist rather than a paediatrician if the assessment um, becomes clear that it's a a more need, a mental illness issue that needs addressing.
0: Yeah, okay. And so one of the concerns that women often have postnatally, and we touched on it a little bit before, is about taking medications while breastfeeding. So what are some of the treatment options for postnatal depression? Um, what sort of like antidepressants is safe to use while breastfeeding? And is there a role for electroconvulsive therapy or ECT? Um,
1: and look, you really should extend that into pregnancy because yes, even yeah. more than breastfeeding women um, are rightly worried about exposing a baby in utero to, to antidepressants. So... Um, there are a number of options, and I think overall there are a lot of those ones that are sitting on the border that don't necessarily need antidepressants, and there is a probably a tendency to over-prescribe, partly because the women themselves are driving that and they want mm-hmm. a quick-fix option, um, but it's not the only option. At the more severe end, though, I, I'm thinking that you know mostly um, medication is required. Yeah. So it's about a balance of risk. So whether it's in breastfeeding or in pregnancy we know in pregnancy that exposing the baby to the mother's illness means that we can pick differences in the baby um, and how the baby's heart rate goes up and down under the mother of stress when the mother is stressed um, and we know that the baby's cortisol at delivery is higher mm-hmm. and that that cortisol and stress reactions seem to be altered for the rest of that child's life mm-hmm. so this is a major sort of risk that where you know you can't say not treating is acceptable because there seems to be a risk so if the other options are certainly psychological treatments so cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be very effective but it does require some motivation some insight some capacity to do some homework which is much harder for postnatal the um, depressed women um, because they 're busy because they they're really struggling to get on top of housework babies they 've got these intensive thoughts going around they feel unsupported isolated, and doing homework and getting to appointments can all be problematic but certainly' CBT and a range of other um, uh, things like um, group therapies. Um, Doing things like yoga and mindfulness, incredibly helpful for the the anxious, yeah. um, that those ones on the border of whether medication is really required. And um, all of those can help. And the evidence suggests that doing all of those and medication for the more certainly the moderate to severe ones works even better still. Yeah. So that you know, just taking medication is really not good enough. You still need some of that therapy. And a lot of the therapy can also not be necessarily straight CBT, but a more supportive. Broad, you know, broadly, a psychedelic approach looking at um, the change. It's a huge change, mm-hmm. um, and it's why why a lot of women do struggle, even if they don't get depressed, because it's suddenly gone down to one wage, um, their identity is mm-hmm. is changed. That when you go to work, you have a paycheck coming in every two weeks, and a boss that generally will say good things about you, or clients that you're with that are giving you positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And babies don't do that. Um, you have to internalise that yourself and get the joy out of that and interpret the baby smiling okay. at you as that you're doing a good job. Yeah. Whereas women with postnatal depression tend to miss those smiles and tend to say, anyone can do that, anyone can do this, the baby doesn't need me. So it's about internalising a positive message and seeing the importance of what you're doing. And there is no doubt that that primary care role is incredibly important. It doesn't mean you have to do it by yourself and a village can raise a child but that primary carer is still hugely important and getting joy out of that is is really important. Um, So working with the woman and her her partner which I know we're going to go on to and sometimes her mum as well, the support team, looking at um, what This is meant to you. And why abuse sometimes can be a a big trigger um, or a risk factor for postnatal depression is because when you have a baby, you look down at this gorgeous but very dependent child and Mm. you can be reminded of your own um, unmet dependency, emotional needs that got squashed down when you were abused as a child or Mm. neglected. And when I say abuse, it doesn't have to be sexual abuse. I'm talking about a wide range of abuse where your needs as a child weren't met. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can get stirred up. And as much as you might love this baby, um, you can be really stirred up into feeling overwhelmed um, mm-hmm. and your own kind of fears brought to the surface, and that can lead. And in that case, perhaps a lot more than just brief psychotherapy, but more of an ongoing um, psychotherapy to really make sense of what happened when you were a child and how that sort of feeds into where you are now and what sort of mother you want to be.
0: mm mm-hmm. So, do you think there's ever a role for ECT in severe? Um, so, look,
1: we do use ECT um, only at the severe end, yep. um, and can be life-saving in postpartum psychosis. Okay. So, postpartum psychosis only occurs in one in 600 yep. um, births, but you know that still means it occurs. Uh, whereas, you know, postnatal depression is more 10 14 percent that yep. sort of. So, it's a very different amount. But in those cases, it can be life-threatening for mum and for baby, and ECT can be really Mm -hmm. life-saving the problem with ect quite aside from the stigma and just the anxiety about it is it does can affect memory Mm -hmm. but also is it gets people better but Mm -hmm. doesn't keep them better so you still have to find a medication that actually will keep them well Mm -hmm. so that it's not the be all and the end all it's only one of the tool and the armor uh, to which you can use in the short term Mm
0: -hmm. so in terms of postpartum psychosis how can we go about identifying risk factors
1: so anyone who has a past history of bipolar disorder automatically, automatically has a high risk of a relapse, which basically looks like postpartum psychosis. So postpartum psychosis, most people consider is probably a variant of bipolar, and it just happens to be the first episode, and some of those will go on to develop bipolar. Some will only ever have risks in future pregnancies, so if you've had previous postpartum psychosis, absolutely at high risk and need close monitoring. The next thing is family history. Any family history of bipolar disorder need close watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other kind of question I ask is have um, you ever had uh, real problems with jet lag? Because mm-hmm. that's can be another trigger and we think wow. the um, the sleep deprivation for people prone to postpartum psychosis is a real trigger. So that's something to really... So anyone that's had some real issues with that... Or has tried illicit drugs, and I'm thinking particularly things like marijuana, which most people, you know, kind of get, kind of a bit, ah, kind of go into a nice trip place. Yep. But if you've had a paranoid reaction to yep. that, um, which some people do, then I would also put you at high risk, um, high risk of a postpartum psychosis as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you go about assessing and managing these patients?
1: Um, so early identification is really critical and so this kind of might be nursing staff in hospital
0: um
1: registrars and and, oh and obstetricians may all be in the mix there gps um the maternal child health nurses really critical because it tends to happen in the first few weeks um generally they're fairly dramatic so if they happen at home um the family will notice something is not not right so anyone who presents within the first month of postpartum with odd behavior is postpartum psychosis until proven otherwise Um, so really needs a careful tease out Uh, and they can be very good at hiding again um, but needs needs an ongoing it needs an assessment with a specialist really if if you're concerned Um, and you might want to get the cat team Involved if you're just not quite sure, and you want want someone kept a closer eye on. But but an urgent psychiatric appointment is really necessary in those cases. And and if the case is, most of them are going to be needing um, an inpatient admission.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So I thought maybe to finish off, we could chat a bit about um, postnatal depression among fathers. Um, yeah. Is it something that we see often?
1: Yeah. Look, it's been. Talked about a lot more than it used to be, um, from a research point of view, it tends to be the fathers that are married to the mums who have got postnatal depression, okay. and part of that is their reaction to her issues, um, and that things haven't turned out um, the way it was planned for either of them. But then the other aspect of that is that they're both mum and dad um, are exposed to the same risk factors, yes. so lack of finances. Um, lack of support for each other, so they may well have some of the same same problems um, that they're both dealing with. And support's a huge issue, uh, and our culture's not really very good at that. We're mm-hmm. meant to kind of just have a baby and get on with things mm-hmm. and really... Some of the the other cultures, like historically Asian cultures in particular, have been much better at the the 40 days of, you know, mums and to just sit there and do nothing very much. Um, And really that's about supporting the mother. And we're not good at doing that. So it's true for the fathers as well. We're not really very good at understanding the issues for them. And I think more and more the issues for dads with this generation is, there's been a transition from their dads, and certainly the grandfathers' generations of dads who just sat outside of the um, the maternity ward and just smoked a cigar while the baby was being born, versus being in there and being meant to do 50% of the work. Yeah. And a lot of these guys were still brought up by fathers who were the women's workers, kind of the babies and that. They don't know. They more often than not want to be involved, mm-hmm. but really don't know how to mm-hmm. be, and particularly if the is being breastfed, they're feeling really on the outer and if there's not a good sort of relationship between the couple, there's a lot of anxiety about how to manage that mm-hmm. um, and what to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there any particular way that we can maybe pick up at-risk dads, like if they're coming to antenatal visits? Um,
1: look, I think they should always be included and be involved. Um, the more they can be sort of asked about stuff, uh, certainly... In theory, they're meant to be able to come along to the maternal and child health centres. Yeah. Doesn't happen in practice um, as much as it probably should, um, but that's kind of an opportunity for them. But I think, in general, particularly the dads that are stay-at-home dads, you know, feel the mothers' groups that run by maternal mm-hmm. child health nurses they stand out like a sore thumb and really don't have the same issues that the mums um, are talking about. Mm-hmm. A lot of the mums are very welcoming, but. It's a very different dynamic. So um, I think we need to be much more welcoming and opening to that. Uh, there are a number of things, sort of online mm-hmm. and um, in, in particular communities that will specifically organise things for dads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think obstetricians can be more open to you know, bringing them along to the six-week visit and talking to them as well about how things are going on. And GPs, of course. Yep. Uh, and GPs really are at the forefront of this because this is going to be an ongoing um, thing. And, and maternal child health nurses too because they're all going to be involved in the ongoing um, immunisations of the baby. There are going to be some constant contacts with mum particularly. Mm-hmm. But don't forget to ask about dad.
0: Well, that sounds good. All right. So in summary, we've had a chat a bit about antenatal and postnatal depression, and it's become increasingly clear to me that antenatal depression is just as important as postnatal depression in terms of the impacts on the mother and the baby and the whole sort of family unit. Are there any particular resources that you'd recommend um, potentially for mothers, but also for um, sort of medical students and um, junior doctors?
1: Um, Look, there's lots of good things online. Mm -hmm. Um, Just do a search, you'll find a million things, Um, including apps for mums um, with with postnatal depression and uh, do-it-yourself CBT and uh, all sorts of helpful things. Panda, of course, Post and Antenatal Depression Association, um, which has got a phone in line with counsellors, is terrific at uh, helping direct people um, as to where to go. Um, and depending on where you live as to what um, is actually available in your area. But your maternal child health nurse um, is an invaluable resource because they know what's available in your area. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of specific things that tend to be location. Um, for, for instance, one of the mums in my unit was um, Chinese background um, and like hadn't been in Australia very long and obviously she was living in an enclave of other Chinese mums because the local maternal child health nurse organized a group for Chinese mums yep. um, and likewise young single mums yep. a lot of the inner city places um, the maternal child health nurses have um, specific groups so that you're going to be able to link with mums in a similar situation to yeah. yourself, so that's where your maternal child health centres kind of invaluable for for tapping into that.
0: Yeah, and in terms of support for dads, there's a podcast um, where some there's like two young dads and they talk about mm-hmm. their experiences. Sort of being first-time dads, and I think there's yep. also an app as well that I've come across. Yep. Yep. Um, anti, and anti it sort of sends the dads text, being like, "Oh, you're doing a good job." And yep. Supposedly yep. There's that's there's a good. few
1: for them as well, and yeah. I know one of my ex registrars who's now a psychiatrist, Matt Roberts, does sort of podcast. Uh, right. I think podcasts and certainly online stuff yep. for dads. That's
0: right. Um, we might pop some on our resources page for being yep. able to. Yep. Great. Be cool. Well, thank you so much for coming in, and it's been fantastic. fantastic. Really, really interesting. Thank really, you. As I'm sure all our listeners. thank you very much great thank you so much see you later